to say a few things about um, you have a lot of teachers. You've all had advisors and counselors and associates and peers and fellow readers and all like that. And there's a lot of expertism about writing anymore. And um, it's most of it is cool. Most of it's use, uh, sensible, but most of it's not useful because it's what we're doing is so personal and in the dark that it's fun to come out of the dark and talk about it. Um, but we get, need to exercise. At all times I'm thinking, how is this helping? What can I do? Where's the, where's the tool? Where's the instrument in this? How can I advance the cause? And we meet in workshops and classrooms, and uh, slowly creative writing teaching in the United States is getting better, more focused. And there's been, there was a long time when I was your age when it was very vague. It was all the, all the best wishes. It was show, don't tell, kind of moot and mute advice. And uh, slowly we're moving over toward this discussion of um, the, um, the process, the process of writing. You know, because this, the teacher is the blank page and the dark and an hour. You've come to the Vermont studio. You can sit at this table if you'd like. Okay. It's close to me, but that's, and I'll be able to see your doodles while you're, <laughs> when you start to get bored. I make a lot of doodles. Don't doodle when people are talking. It's one of the big no-nos in a job interview, um, which is what this is. So, yeah, seriously, you're, you're going to want to, you don't want to be excused from the table before the end of the hour. I even dress up. Yeah, who are you? I'm Sayard. Yeah. My name is Sayard. Sayard. Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay, that's enough out of you. My name, okay, my name is Ron Carlson. So, um... So anyway, I thought we'd talk about the process this morning, and I thought I'd look at one story, one example, and use it as the um, use it as this uh, structure to uh, fly off and make a lot of other uh, notes. Um, I, I'm going to speak in such a way that it doesn't seem like you can ask a question. I, I get going, and I'm going to go like this, and here we go. But you can ask a question. Anybody, just raise your hand, and I'll stop. And we'll. It's going to seem like I'm not going to stop, but I'm going to stop. I'm not going to do to you what I just did to Sarah. Um, the, um, I handled it. So, yeah, no, you did. You're tough. I don't want to. That's why I'm backing it off. Um, so, the, um, so um, the biggest issue I see in most of the stories, and I've, I read widely and I judge competitions one or two every year, and so there are a couple of years, not for, you know, eight, there were eight years ago when I judged the Penn Faulkner, I read more fiction than anybody else in the United States. I know it. And so as a teacher, of course, you're consulting. There's always a manuscript on your desk. There's a manuscript on my desk right now. It'll be the, I mean, just about the time. I never see this. I never see Bearwood at my house. And um, so what I've been seeing is a lot of stories which are on topic. And the thing that I've been saying is where's the second story? If you're going to write 14 pages, why aren't you? Why are there two? And it's because a writer controls her story. She understands the topic. She got the idea, quote unquote, from the idea. I'm reading a story by a close friend of mine now who, um, she's our administrator, and she went to Emerson College and got an MFA, and now she's and I I volunteer to read a story of hers every term, and she's given me a story about a man and a woman who are midlife and whose the woman finds out she has cancer. We find out on page three, and what she's doing is she's going around to the farmer's markets in the local uh, village, and she's finally found someone she thinks is a suitable wife, second wife for her husband. 
Okay, that's the premise. Okay, I just so um, and or Alice Munro's story reminds us of Alice Munro's story where the 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 man the man's wife in the rest home with Alzheimer's falls in love with someone else. Okay, that's the first story, and so and I see a lot of stories. Many times they're about illness, not just this story, but uh, someone will have cancer in a story, say, and the story's about having cancer. And when, in fact, the story is about how not to have cancer. Like, how does a person have time to have cancer? Or, na or name it. And, and, the, and the real story, the, the credibility and the hurt comes from the fact that nobody has time for cancer. Okay? And so the story is, how do you not have time for this? And that second story is what's missing in a lot of the work I see by people in their first dozen stories. And it's because of an understanding of their premise. It, that means so they know what they're writing, and so they say it. And so they go from point A to point B. It's the shortest line, and that's not the most effective dramatic line. Okay. Um, these last two stories I read by T.C. Boyle, the one that was in Playboy this month and the one in The New Yorker this week, are both complicated by that. You read them, and they're less than satisfying in a sense because you're not exactly sure what the value of the girl was, what the guy's going to do. But I admire that complication. Somewhere between the nifty, well-ordered story and the open puzzle, the kind of things that Ann Beattie used to write in the late 70s and 80s, those stories I loved so much, which were puzzles. She said, sometimes the story's a puzzle, and that's enough for me. Uh, somewhere between them, we have the operating and the viable story that gets both. We have a woman looking for a hus wife for her s husband. Okay, That could be the motor of the story. That's fabulous. I'm glad for it. But what should happen? What are these lives? And I'm always saying this, into what life has this moment come? Because I have the moment, and I have a lot of stories, the moment comes into life and people seem to handle it, but they, it's as if they were waiting just outside the door for the story to start, and when we turn to page one, they come in and commence their lives. And there's no story memory or that haunting thing of, this, of the, the fabric of what might be affected by this news. Um, okay, so that's... Uh, enough said on that. Into what life has this moment come? And many times that we start a story on page one with the ostensible first action. People are doing things. They're unloading uh, bark for their garden. They're going to line the trees or whatever. And the second page we get where they were last week, and the fact that they just you know they finally decided to make try to make a go of it again. He's been in a bachelor apartment for six months, hating it, you know, eating chili. Not always, not always hot. And okay, so now, then what should happen? What is, what, you know? So, uh, as I said in, um, uh, the, I wrote a little book about, uh, called Ron Carlson Writes a Story, and uh, in it, um, the outer story, what's going to happen is tremendously important, and it is the outer story. It's the physical world of your story. And there's a moment in every term when I turn to the blackboard and I put my forehead gently against the blackboard, my back to my dear class, and I pound my head against the board as, long, as hard as I can stand it, and I say, will you put something in your story? Will you stop being smart? These people are 20 years old. They're so smart and so subtle and so soft and so delicate that nothing happens. Their characters don't seem to need rent money for some reason. And uh, that writing about money or what a person does seems like that would be, oh, what? come on, I'm a writer. You know, they're having a relationship. Don't you get it? Teach. Yeah, I get it. Okay. But 
Uh, they can't have a relationship. One girl said, I said, what happened? She said, <laughs> she's writing, she said, what about, she's writing about a broken heart. I said, your heart was broken. Yeah, it was. You know, like, fuck you. Yeah, it was, <laughs> my heart was broken. I said, I don't believe it. Where, where was your heart broken? She said, right here. My heart was broken. And so it's hard to do this with undergrads. But um, so I'm saying, I'm saying, uh, where, where is, um, where was the heart broken? She, finally she got it. She said, I was leaning against this silicon. It was dirty. I got my skirt all dirty. I said, oh, now you can, ha now you can have your heart broken. I said, oh, you, you, now you've hurt me with that. The dirty silicon, that dust on your ass. I think it's, it hurts. So that's, and it's hard to get that across. Oddly enough, because we started with stories where we wanted someone getting in a balloon, climbing over the wicker basket with their friends. When we were six and seven, we listened to these stories. We need the physical world. That's the motor. The physical drama of your story is the motor. It's necessary. Okay? And as you know, my default format as a writer is to go to that all the time. I can't think, but I can write the process. You know, if you looked at my writing in the last eight years, you'd see so how much I've leaned and depended and used and advanced my stories via process. That someone even making a sandwich, the size of a knife becomes important. How do you serve coffee? Uh, is coffee, what is that anyway? Well, I don't want to talk about it. But the, what it's, sometimes the dishes are as important as the drink. Is there a saucer? Uh, is there a napkin? Um, so the physical world. Okay, enough on that. Um, how long do we have on this? To 11. We'll say. 11 what? Hey, 11. Relative when do we start? 10. 10. We're not stopping at 11. Come <laughs> uh, so, uh, people may have a kitchen no. already. They can slip out. The, uh, so my ideas are almost never neat. When I have a neat idea, like I had one story idea, I thought... Um, a guy comes home, oh, let's, I'm not even going to tell you, but whenever I have a premise, I get suspicious of it, and I have to wait. When I wrote Sunny Billy Day, this baseball story, I'm putting together this book of baseball stories, I can tell you this one, where I thought, what if there was a baseball player who was so charismatic, so magical, that he could change an umpire's mind? He could go back, the umpire would say, strike three, you're out, and he would go back, and after sp speaking to the umpire a minute, the umpire would say, okay, everybody, two and two, get back in place. <laughs> And because baseball is about the law, and uh, I've never seen a baseball umpire, except one time in a case of a home run, change his mind. I've seen hockey referees change their minds, which is the most dangerous thing that ever happens in athletics. Um, but so I wrote Sunny Billy Day, and I had to wait for the premise. And, and what I did was I put the story in someone else's mouth, a guy who doesn't want to get cut from the baseball team and go home because... He's in danger of losing his girlfriend. Uh, she likes baseball players. She doesn't like insurance agents. And so now I had the, the speaker, and he could carry this voice, and the premise then seemed like something I had time for. Um, so my, m m most of my ideas, the things that I list, are events in my life. I just... I was telling Holly about a story I wrote called Grey Gumbo about a time I got stuck at the Great Salt Lake in this weird greasy clay of which there's 10 tons up there. Uh, I wrote a story um, called The Journalist about a time I interviewed a kid in Jacksonville, Wyoming who had burned his feet, frostbitten his feet and was going to lose his toes. Um, 
I wrote it as nonfiction, and then I waited and waited and waited and waited 15, 18 years, and then I thought I want another story out of that. I, I, and because as a journalist, I had to tell his story, and as a fiction writer, I wanted to tell the narrator's story. So um, those are two. I wrote a story about called Line from a Movie, which is about um, a place called in Los Angeles called the Table Store, where it was the cancer thrift store there on Pico. And uh, I loved going in there with this, my friend because there was somebody who was turning in shirts. And these shirts were sometimes $7 a piece and sometimes two for $7, and they were nice shirts. So I would um, uh, go, uh, so I was looking forward to that. I went in there one day, and instead of getting my shirts, there was a hu huge table in front of um, the, where the shirts were. And this guy was buying a table, and he, the, it was a big oak table with a lid this thick. And um, they had a little tiny dolly that's good for only books. It was ridiculous. And, of course, I love this moment. I've had it many times, and maybe you've had it. Maybe you've had it this week. But it was a moment when I almost feel like I'm beside myself. Something begins happening. I had it with a security guard at my kid's high school once when I went over to watch his rockets being launched. And I was standing in the parking lot because it was rocket day. It was, they'd done these projects. I'd watched him at home for three weeks. And I'd forgotten, and I ran over. It was a Friday, and I had my father's binoculars, and I was standing in the parking lot in my dungarees and this terrible, sh this wonderful shirt. I wrote a lot of stories in. It was an L.L. Bean shirt, and I wrote, till the, I, I wrote, wrote, wrote till the collar came off. And uh, I'm doing this, and I'm watching the, well, the security guard comes up. He doesn't want some geezer glassing the co-eds on the football field. And I had that feeling of being beside myself, and with this guy with his table. I finally got it up and out, and I said, where's your truck? And he said, I just live three blocks away. <laughs> and uh, I ended up going. So that, of course, these are story ideas. Okay, what's the story? My career as a writer, and you're going to have a lot of advisors, like I said, and I'm going to speak from my point of view today fiercely, and then you can discard it, right? You just heard me talk once. and um, But they're like that. They're shards, and I don't know what they mean, and they trouble me, and they bother me, and they hang around. And then I, at, the, at the moment, when, and I try to wait. I never go in too soon. I couldn't go to dinner on a Friday night and write the story on Sunday morning. I just, even if something astonishing had happened, I'd have to wait. I wait till it grows fur or feathers. And um, then I, I start in. And so writing's about not knowing. It's very personal. It's a blank space in the dark. You advance your story, and then you try to stay in the room. The writer's the person who stays in the room. That's the only credo you have. And it's difficult. And many days I win that battle, and some days I actually don't. There are days when you get stumped and stoned, and you end up thinking, maybe I'll be smarter in the other room. Maybe I'll just go into the kitchen. Where's the coffee? Like that. And whenever I think, and I love coffee, but where's the coffee is a lie in my life. It's always a lie. I think, well, I'll get some coffee. That'll make it. It doesn't make it better. It makes it worse. You don't deserve this coffee. You can't write. Why don't you go somewhere and do some good? And so I've learned to sit there until I do something. I advance the case, even a sentence or two or three. And then coffee gets better and better. You can improve everything with a half a morning, okay? So I don't need to talk about that. You know about it. You're confronting it these weeks. So... The table store story, then it explodes. So how would that, what is that story? What would that become? I don't know. How do I find out? Right there. Right my right. hands. With my hands. Uh -huh. And my hands, I'm holding my hands up. My hands are smarter than my head. I can't think. I've tried to think. I've t oh, look, I always have this. 
da-da, I can write something down. <laughs> and it's, yeah, I do write things down, names and things and numbers that I want to remember, but I um, have to sit down and bang it out. And uh, I can't think my way there, I can't talk my way there, but I can write my way there. I've learned that. And one thing leads to another in my writing. So the story I wrote last year is called The Blue Heart. And what it, where it comes from is an incident that happened when I read it. I gave a reading at a bookstore in Los Angeles. And uh, it's no longer there. I forget the one. It was on Wilshire. And the, I went to the reading group beforehand. And then I gave a reading in the bookstore. Then I signed books. And I met my friends, these two friends. I didn't know them very well, two, these two women, one of whom I worked with. Um, at a coffee shop across the street, and when I came in, I was all hot. I took my coat off, and one of the women said, uh-oh, and pointed at me, at my shirt, and on the pocket of my shirt, there was a blue stain the size of a silver dollar. And I'd left my pen off my cap, cap off my pen, which I did. And living alone, you don't want to do it. I don't like ruining these shirts. It's terrible. And, um, you know, you get some pink Oxford cloth shirt, and it's ruined. And I tried to fix it myself, and I'll tell you this much. Don't use Resolve. It <laughs> just makes it worse. You think, oh, that solved it. Then you wash it, and you have 12 spots. Um, for, it encourages it to multiply. The, um, so she said, I can get that out. I thought, what? So we had our coffee. We finished the night. It was a windy night in Los Angeles, 11 o'clock at night. I walked across. My car was parked on a hill, and she said, give me. I, oh, I thought, that's right. So I'm standing there. I don't have, I, I have a, usually a kit in my trunk, and I didn't have it. Uh, usually a windbreaker and gloves and jumper cables and water and rope, etc. But So I didn't know what to do, so this, I, I opened my trunk. I don't, why would you do that? Kind of a little shelter. And I took my coat off, and then I t did take my shirt off, and I gave her my shirt. And she said, uh-oh, and then I, she pointed at my chest, and there was a blue mark on my chest. <laughs> so there it is. So that's a moment. So you're naked from the waist up in Los Angeles with a woman you don't know very well, and the wind is coming through. And then I did a strange thing, which I don't recommend anybody ever do. I put my coat back on. And th that's just icky. Okay, and you... Um, so there, there's my idea for a story. So I write it down, Blue Heart. And I have to wait and wait. And uh, there's all kinds of things. I was talking about Gary about this when you go into a story that you know. Okay, What we want and what I see 19-year-olds wanting is to know as much as possible. So they have like all this equipment. It's like when they wrote their paper on Romeo and Juliet. They did all the note cards. They had all the note cards. That kind of writing is different. You're working from the top down then. You know, why was the nurse irresponsible? I can give you six quotes. Um, and uh, although I sort of like her, she was part of the problem. And you write that, you assemble that story a different way than you're writing from the bottom up. I'm trying to find something out. I'm trying to stay in the room. I'm trying to leave more on the table than I came in with. You put down a nickel and I want a dollar by the end of an hour. How can that happen? And it's about, there's several things you can't teach as a t writing teacher, and one of them is attention. Okay, And writing takes all that attention, and it's not like focused or logistical calculus. It is an attention that, that says, whatever this is going, I'll, I'll, I'm listening to every part of it. I'm going to be humble enough before my materials to see what they're suggesting to me, even when it makes me nervous, 
even when it seems I wanted my story to go over here, where she says to Pete in the diner, you can take this job and shove it. I really want that. But the story starts to go this way, where she realizes the value of the tips, and that she's getting like $70 every two days in tips. Wait a minute, she's going to keep this job? That's not how I started yesterday, typing. Your call, okay? The velocity and heft and vector of your story wants to go where it wants to go. You're, you're going to be partly the instrument. I never bossed any of my stories around except the poor ones. Um, I, you guys get over here. You all there. Everybody in the white shirt's over here. Just doesn't, I don't do it. Um, I listen, I overwrite. It means that I have to write 40, 38 pages to get 22. But um, it's a feeling I love now. When I was your age, I wanted to write seven pages and publish 10. Um, but I'm willing to cut. I'm willing to work. It's work, right? So, uh, with um, Blue Heart, and the name, it's one of the few times where I had the story, the title right away. Where would it go? I don't know. Um, I waited. The other thing that comes together when you sit at the table are things that you, can't, you couldn't tell me. Uh, like you may understand that's set in this town, Johnson, and you know where the bar is two doors down from the laundromat, or wherever the laundromat used to be, or whatever's gone. And um, there's a lot of other things you know. And uh, some of it is things from your past, that mining that, that comes to the surface. And this is not mystery or karmic. It's a matter of that, um, your consciousness, your attention. Um, I'm a sort of a sunny, lucky person. I've had a sweet time. But there's a lot of rue in my story, stories. There's a lot of men with regret. That, that interests me a great deal, and Blue Heart turns out to be one of those stories. So, um, the um, when it came time to start, like the story that I read last night about Blue Iron, it said, one night, the Blue Iron, and they wrote that paragraph. That paragraph, if, I really, if I was really talking to writers, if I really wanted to be honest with you, that was a huge thing. That was like a snake eating a pig. <laughs> it was a huge thing to swallow for me to write that paragraph and stand behind it and said, yeah, that happened. Yeah. I made that all up. And again and again in your writing, you have to say, I made that up and I'm going to stick to it. So you take a deep breath. I've done it recently with a piece that I'm working on while I'm here. And um, so I wrote this paragraph, the Phoebe Caulfield Bookstore. So I name a, a bookstore after Holden Caulfield's sister, and I'm just going to stay with it. It doesn't exist you know, I say, no, I made that up. I'm going to quit. I'm going to go get some coffee. No, 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 no. The Phoebe Caulfield bookstore is just one room, a one-room shop. And then since I don't believe it, I'm going to furnish it with, with a neighborhood. And that's the problem is I have to overwrite in order to believe my story. The only person who needs to believe your story is you, the writer, so she can stay in the room and finish the work. The readers won't believe it because they won't come along because you will not have finished. And finish is the first thing I should have said here, and it should be still, it should be written on the, near the ceiling. We finish our work, and even not knowing where we're going, we're going to finish our work. The Phoebe Caulfield bookstore is just a one-room shop on what is called Baker's Row. I made that up. <laughs> what? 
Baker's Row, and because it is surrounded by three patisseries and across the street from Sweet Nuit, the French word for night, <laughs> and Cabanga, the two great bars on Jefferson, a street I also made up, it has enough walk-in traffic that it's staying in business, one of the last small bookstores in town. Plus, Morris Queld, a name I made up, the owner has a big sign by the door, quote, bring in your coffee, your croissant, your smuggled bottle of rum. Okay, that's the first paragraph about this place. So I said it. One of the rules that I have for a short story is I see everything twice. So already you know those clubs are going to come back, this set is going to come back, and it's one of my senses of a story memory and story form. And I start... But I say, when I say sweet neat, neat, or cabanga, I say it here, I don't know when I'll get to catch it, or if I will. Um, I was giving, paragraph two, I was giving a reading at the Phoebe, and I went by early. So this is a guy, a writer. Now, when I'm writing about a writer, really nervous. I wrote that story last night about a rock band, because when you write about a writer, you always make it either a musician. Most writers make it a painter, because painters have all that good stuff. A writer sits around, you don't even get to crumpled paper anymore, and you can't smoke. Remember, at least writers used to smoke like this, smoke, and then crumple the paper and throw it on the floor. That great scene in, in the paper chase when they study and all that, they fill that hotel room up with paper. God, paper. Um, I miss everybody. Um, I was giving a reading at the Phoebe, and I went by early to see Morris and help him set up. We pushed the one roll. So now, I know what to do now. Because I've been in these bookstores where they have rolling bookshelves, you know, Waking Owl in Salt Lake City. Long, do you, were you ever there, Holly? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you know Patrick DeFreitas? And, the, and, and yeah, he was. I donned every one of my books in that bookstore as he moved it around. May it rest in peace. And uh, Changing Hands Bookstore in Tempe, Arizona, still there. I just wrote a little essay about it. So you're writing the process. We pushed the one rolling shelf, which was mysteries on one side and sports on the other against the back wall, and we set up a dozen of the light-duty folding chairs he kept in the mop closet. You can hear me, just I left foot, right foot. I'm going very, very slowly because I want to survive this story and I don't know what's going to go on. Our guy's going to give a reading. I'm going to find out something in the next hour uh, that I don't know now. Okay. If I write for 45 minutes and I don't find something that I didn't know when I started, then I understand that I'm probably on dry ground. And it's very disturbing to create a character. You know, in comes so-and-so, and then you think, oh, i got to deal with this. When I was writing Truants, I was talking about writing it in Salt Lake in that office, uh, my second novel. I was a young guy, and I really wanted... It was such a neat idea. I had this premise that the kid was in a juvenile detention center put there by his father for being incorrigible. He was trying to... His father was single, and the boy didn't want the father to date. So when the father had women over, he would start fires, small fires in the kitchen. <laughs> he called them arsonettes. And uh, so he's in a he's in a juvenile detention center. He meets an old and a summer on a job. He meets an old man in a retirement home, put there by his son, because he's beginning to become senile. Yin and yang, such a neat. Pattern. I thought, oh, this is novel. They run away together. I got on page 35. My, my boy is working at the state fair in Utah, and he's watching this motorcycle act, which I actually saw, where a girl rides on a trapeze underneath a motorcycle, and 
I realized that she was going to go with him. I was on page 35 or 40 of a novel, and I realized this girl, Louisa Holtz was her name, was going to go with the guy. I can't tell you what I felt that day. I wanted to quit because that was going to be a lot of work. I wasn't, you know, what happened to yin and yang? It was so cool. Now this girl isn't, but it would be a better book. It would be more honest, more complicated, more work. Um, for a podium process, Morris had an old music stand from our junior high, and it was covered, oh, well, they went to school together, from our junior high, and it was covered with silver signatures of the people who had read at his bookstore. I saw such a thing once in a little bookstore on the Central Avenue in Phoenix. Uh, they had you sign a pillar, I think, after you read, and they gave you a book. I chose William Trevor's Collected Stories. Four inches thick. Uh, he can really write a story. Those are good stories. If you want to understand Alice Monroe, read William Trevor. Uh, I mean, I love Alice Monroe. Paragraph three. He had a stack of my little books. Okay, One Flame, Two Nights. Nice title for a book of poetry. One Flame, Two Nights. A chapbook of 24 poems, although there were only 23. <laughs> So that's weird, but I don't know. And it's interesting. I just typed this thing, and I'm, I'm going to have confidence. I don't know what, where this is going, but I'm going to believe it. Cool, Morris said, setting them out on the counter amid all the gift goo a person can buy at a bookstore. He'd already told me, this is from Patrick DeFreitas at, Chain, at Waking Owl Bookstore. He one time, he said, Ron, I'm only staying in uh, business by these cards. He could get four ninety five for a birthday card. It was hard to sell books. He'd already told me that keychains and postcards were paying his bills, and it was cool. I hadn't seen a little stack of the things before. <laughs> I have a bookstore, he said, and you wrote a book. Who knew? So old friends, Morris Quaid. I had to step into that. I sort of knew, I said, but not until 11th grade. Look at us. You would own a sweet bookstore full of all your favorite stuff, and I would write a book that would cost me everything and pay me nothing. You're an artist, Lanny. He said that as if it explained everything. Now, you need to understand, we're writing together, right? Just stay with me. I'm in the dark. I'm just going left foot, right foot. When someone says something in dialogue, dialogue is like playing tennis against a real person, not hitting a ball against the wall. When I hit it over there, high and soft, I understand it's going to go down low like this. But if I hit it over there to somebody, it could come back anywhere. I have to go around and sit in the other chair. Writing dialogue is about sitting in all the chairs. And writing dialogue is really about how people don't talk, don't listen to each other. Um, there's a lot of talk about dialogue and the structure of dialogue. And it just simply, I'll just simply say this, slow down, take your time. You can write a page of dialogue like that. But dialogue does not serve the story. Dialogue, people say, well, it advances the story. I'm always amused by that because I guess it does, but how can, how can my characters advance the story because I don't know the story? Um, and so I'm writing about going into the unknown. I have some inklings that are developing, the same way the inklings are developing in the story that I was thinking about in bed last night, this one that I'm working on here. Um, and... You're an artist, Lanny. He said that as if it explained everything, which it did not. But he said it like he was proud of it, happy for it. And some of that got on me. You still know where I'm going, right, with the blue, the blue shirt, right? I've still got that. I've got that dollar in the bank. And so before I spend that dollar, I want to have as much inventory out as possible. 
When I wrote the governor's ball, by the time he finds the mattress that he's dropped off the truck, I've got to have everything else in place so that I can still stay. It's not the end. Oh, there's your mattress, the end. Okay, that's the motor. I've used the motor to get myself deeply in the story. Okay, so I, okay. You're an artist, which it did not. But he said it like he was proud of it, happy for it, and some of that got on me. It was early and there was no one else in the store. Sir, nothing's happened. It was dark out already, the middle of November, and about half cold. I like an ambient world. What's the light? What time of day? What time of year? Go in, when I, and I, sometimes I rewrite for it, ambient world, ambient temperature. I can't rewrite a story when I rewrite. I can't make a story better, but I can make it colder. So I write for one brick in the wall, and by moving that other one brick, many times other bricks move too. Am I making sense? I'm changing metaphors, I know. I'm going to start to... Uh, it makes sense to me, but I'm not sure where I am. Um, the middle of November and half cold. Go next door and get a coffee, Morris said, while the crowd arrives. Okay, perfect. I thought, so, next paragraph. I went next... I'm going to get a whole other paragraph. So, I went next door into Cold Hands. That's the name of the place. My favorite of the bakeries... I've already established there were patisseries because it had been a bar, and this is from Sam Weller's bookstore, because his basement, he took over the Red Bell downtown, and the bookstore had this red velvet, um, at the time, this velvet wallpaper. It was so strange, uh, sort of appropriate the time I bought Crime and Punishment, um, because it had been a bar, and one wall was all red booze, and the waitresses wore uniforms. The place was empty. When the woman came to my table... Okay, here comes the waitress. I'm stuck. I need help. The 180-degree rule is, what's the least likely thing I can get out of the new character's mouth and still have it credible? What's the most generic thing? What can I get you? Hi, I'm Andre. I'll be your server. Um, I, I like to... My father, we'd always run into people when I was with my dad, and they'd be stopped somewhere. He couldn't pass a car that was stopped on the road. And it became my policy, too, and it's a good policy because it saved me lots of time. When I see somebody, I just pull over. Can I help you? Rather than going two miles and saying I should go back. Mm-hmm. I used to do that. It made me crazy. In Arizona, you're always going back with water. They already have water, but you should step once. They're set. You can go. Um, but my father would pull up to these people and he'd come up to the guy and he'd say, what does it say to you now? And I thought, how do they know each other? <laughs> but it was the way men in that generation talked. And I liked it, as opposed to all the vacancy we have now. This, And um, so, the woman came to my table. She said, look at you, the poet. What do you mean, I said. I looked at her, and I did not know her. She had her light hair parted in the middle and drawn back into the bun at her neck. So I gave her some hair. Many times you give people a couple of... Um, what was I reading where, uh, gosh, just, anyway, so that was all I wanted to do. I believe that. Sometimes you give somebody a pair of um, <coughs> uh, slip-on shoes with a piece of tape around the toe, the way my prep school students used to wear it. It was, uh, they'd take the most expensive pair of uh, penny loafers, wear the sole off, and then tape them because that was it. That was just the touch, the, the little little uh, susan of perfection. Um Look at you, the poet. What do you mean, I said. I looked at her and did not know her. She had her light hair parted in the middle and drawn back into the bun at her neck. 
You're giving the reading tonight, right? I am, and you knew that because I came in for a coffee? Look at your sport coat. It's the same one you write in, isn't it? And your notebook? You should take your pen out. Okay, so I got a smart ass here. I like her. I sort of like that last night when I was talking with Dawson starts talking and they say, oh, we don't want the karma speech. And all of a sudden you get inside and you're allowing the people. It's the kind of thing you can't get if you're getting to, is the song cursed? What's the curse? But the moment of credibility when I'm having my players, my players play, that's where the rest of the story is going to live and hurt me. It's that platform, like how does the person not have... If a woman comes to the hospital in which her father is dying, and she's come from Orlando, and she's been estranged from her father, and her father, this is in Cincinnati, and she's flown, and she's... If she has to find the phone number of the fax machine, because of this deal she's on, she's doing this real estate moment, then you could hurt me with the, with the hospital room. If she just comes and she's the woman in the piece, you can't hurt me because it rises to topic. And the writing will be good enough, and that's not good enough. Okay, The bookstores are full of, of, of writing, which is with people with no life into what life, and it, everyone's getting away with it. But I'm talking about another level here that isn't going to be expensive for us, but it's going to create a level of credibility and heft that's going to make our stories give us the power to, knock, to, to nudge us around. Um, Okay. Look at you should take out your pen. We looked at each other for a moment. I did not know what to say. I had spent the last half year not knowing what to say. Okay, I like that. My guy's emerging. She reached and pulled my pen from my pocket and handed it to me. Look at this nice clean and well lighted room. You could write something. She looked at her little silver dress watch. Oh, I gave her a watch too. I like that. You've got thirty five minutes. I'll bring you a coffee. Okay, so she's advanced. I've, I'm always looking for uh, honoring our characters by making them capable of the current moment. As opposed to saying, look, I'm in love with your sister, and having Sheila say, what? You're in, I can't believe you're in love with my sister. Uh, I want the story, what about Sheila saying, I wondered when you were going to tell me. What, what's, what energy am I getting by making the surprise 10 to 1? There's a feeling about drama that we should have BS, big surprises. And I don't, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that we honor our characters by making them capable of the moment. So uh, the more knowing they can be, sometimes there's more energy in that. Are you coming to the reading, I said? I, thank you, sir, I am. I know the author. She was bored and having fun, but it was nice. I did open my notebook, and there was the 24th poem, which I hadn't finished because of my reason. Okay, I wrote that because I don't know the reason. Um, but there's something that I do know that's, um, that's ineffable. And when you're writing, there's always an element of your story that you don't know yet, but it's just outside of your vision, like a shape in the dark. It's like someone in the room you know, but you can't see them. And I don't want to talk, it is ineffable, but it's not magical. It comes from being in the space and being in your room and being in the dark with your work. Okay, and it happens. You can't go outline this on a big blackboard. If you're going to write a big novel like The Da Vinci Code in which the characters serve the plot, then yes, you can go outline your novel. But that's a different, the, the characters there are serving that very complicated and lovely puzzle. Okay, it's just fine, it's what it does. It's what James Patterson and his sidekick do. 
They outline the book, then they write it by day. You know, they can write a book in 11 weeks. Okay? That's a kind of writing, and I understand it, and some of it's pretty good. But it isn't where I'm trying to create a cauldron into which I'm going to drop my characters so they can get tested. Uh, I'm trying to find something out. Plot is meant to test and try the characters. The characters are not there to serve the plot. Um, though inevitably sometimes they do. Um, the Okay, I hadn't finished right. the... Tw- yes? Just at the, so at this moment where you wrote in, uh, it, uh, this is the way I've been for the last six months. Yeah. That's another place that... Yeah, it came up. and I knew my guy was diffident and there's something bothering him. Right. And this ineffable thing, there's something the matter. And the girl, the woman who took my shirt, I was half in love with her when she did it. You don't stand out in the night in Los Angeles with your shirt off with somebody, give them a shirt. I mean, it's the strangest thing I'd done for a year. I'm a limited person. I don't get out much. <laughs> Seriously, I don't. And so everything like buying a, that table store story and all this mm-hmm. stuff, it sticks to me. And so, um, but I was going, doing the converse. I was using the motor of that blue spot with something very different here. And, it, and in the next page, it get, the story takes a dark turn. Uh, this kid, this guy, and but there's some something very true about it because... I was able to get to one thing that's true about me, and that is I'm a shy person. When I'm teaching or when I'm in public, I send my public guy, and he knows how to behave. I get him dressed in the morning, and I say, good, you go, guy. He goes out there and does what he, and then he goes back. But, but at the end, writing is so, I've been writing a long time. I took a job uh, from Utah. We're going to digress because we're going to go just past 11 a minute or two. Um, the... Um, <laughs> I took a job, I was at Utah, and I got, there were no jobs, it was a long time ago, and I took a job teaching at a prep school in Connecticut, and I flew out, and long, long story, but I ended up teaching, and I just went, I had the honor of that class, my first class, invited me back to their 40th reunion in um, June, so I went back and saw all these characters who run the world, essentially, uh, and uh, it was really a great reunion, because they all got older than I am. And uh, so I've been writing since then. I wrote my first stories on uh, right before that year, and then, uh, but again and again. And when I think of my writing, I've written a very funny story uh, that I was going to read last night, but it would have given you all the wrong impression. It's about vampires, and it all it hinges on the word exsanguinated, and the guy's sick of hearing the word exsanguinated. But you can read; it'll be in Playboy in November. <coughs> So they're bringing it out for Halloween. It's a Halloween story. It's very funny, very broad. Um, it was called The Vampire Horses of the Cumberbund Steeplechase. But he took the vampire horses out. He said, we didn't want to give it away. Um, the, um, so yes, and I'm, I'm used to, and the, I know when I start a story, I know one thing that I want you all to leave this room knowing, and that is that you'll get it. I don't know what it will be, and sometimes I don't know if it's going to be short or long or comic but, uh, or serious, but I know I'm going to finish a draft, so I give it a chance. Um, okay, now, when the waitress came back, she told me her name, Abby, and she said, I'm not the crazy waitress. I'm just talking. Enjoy your coffee. That's me defending myself. Saying, oh, look what Carlson did. He created the crazy waitress. Now I'll put it in her mouth 
no one's going to see it. I'm being honest with you since we're here in Vermont. And um, <laughs> so, right? I'm not the crazy waitress. It helps me get her back a little bit. She's aware of she's been having him on. I'm just talking. Enjoy your coffee. Okay, next paragraph. Four kids came in right then. Oh, good. New data. Uh, with their sweatshirts in one hand and my book in the other, pushing and hauling. Three girls and a boy, all about 15. Here, here, one of them said as they shuffled into a booth by the front. Very physical, very dramatic out there. The mocha has one million calories, the girl said. So now they get to talk. No, it doesn't. Two million. Hey, the guy said, that's him. Then I took a gambit, which I'm going to continue through the story. I write about the man the way I do so I cannot get ahead of myself. I wrote what I wrote for 23 weeks, each week one poem. I didn't finish the 24th poem because I wanted them to let me out, and they did. The man was informed that his 24-week sentence would be 23 weeks, and the reason was something. The reason was clerical, the man assumed. Still, he wanted, after 23 weeks, to be out of jail, and he wanted to go home, which he did. So, third person. The guy speaks about himself. So there's dislocation. It's fine. I've never done it before. And I've, I've, I've discouraged it in other writers. But here I've got a case for a, a guy within who's writing about himself. Um, the shortest girl of the group appeared at my elbow. So that little bit of exposition is now swimming under the boat. What is it? 23 weeks in jail. What? Remember my dollar. The shortest girl of the group appeared at my elbow. You are Lanford Mills, she said. I've read your book. I'm in Miss Hostel's class. You were in college with her. Did you know the class was coming tonight? Yeah, so a lot of exposition in her little speech. Yes, I said. She said they might. I'm glad to see you. And then the girl says, if I go around and get in her, stand in her feet, there's a lot of platitude here. Yes, I did. She said they might. I'm glad to see you. Then the girl says... It's not a book for children. So she's skipping one step, bringing in, it's not a book for children. Are you a child? Oh, no, I meant it as a compliment. Ms. Hostel says you can tell a writer by the honesty, but that honesty is hard to tell sometimes. Thank you, I said. Her friends were watching from their table. Do you have to write a paper about the reading? <coughs> we can, she said, extra credit. She stuck her little hand out. I'm Anna Garcia. Glad to meet you, Anna. I shouldn't use that A because isn't the, isn't the waitress's name? Yeah, can't have it. Uh, Going to have to change that. Um, alone again in the bakery. Okay, I'll see you. Alone again in the bakery, I wanted to write something down about the man being out at night again and how I felt very much like he did not want anyone to be next door when he stood and went over to read. Okay, so now we're halfway through the story. It's a very short story. Um, so he's come, he met Morris Quaid, he's going to read this book. One night, one candle, two nights, I think it's called. Uh, Space I have a question. Yes. Why can't you have two characters with, whose name starts with the same letter? You can, and uh, you know who did it famously 25 years ago was Ann Beattie put Myra and Mary in a story. They were both young women, both confused, and she was just doing it to be perverse. <laughs> but you try to keep, I use initial letters to try to keep people, I, of course I read so much that I won't let someone use Marvin and uh, Mervin, you know, whatever. You've got... So I just want to set up a part, it just for just for housekeeping. But no, yeah, you if you had two great names, if you had Mickey and Maurice, stay with it. Um, 
The um, okay. Well, so now the, the uh, his friend is Morris Quaid. Is that right? Morris Quaid. Q U A I D. Yeah. Was there a quelled near the beginning, or did I mis misunderstand it? Um, no. It was his name. Oh, quelled. Q U E L D. Right. Did I change it? Yeah. I think I did. Well, thank you for that. Um, okay. There were 30 people in the bright little bookstore. Okay, so that's my transition. What's the inventory of the room? So they were sitting knee to knee on Morris chairs and standing in the back. He had moved the music stand to the wall, and I squeezed in there and lay out my papers. The music stand was not enough to hide behind and everyone was looking at me. This wasn't therapy and this wasn't drama. This was a man reading from a book of contemplative poems he'd written while in jail for hurting a child, so I'm going to open, I'm going to open the exposition. He was in jail for hurting a child that he didn't see one night while driving. He hadn't been drunk and he hadn't seen the boy who had stepped back to catch a set of keys his brother had thrown to him. The accident had broken the boy's radius and his femur, and the boy was in the hospital for seven weeks and was now in therapy. He would be okay, but he would never be the same. The man was cited for improper lookout and speeding, though the man was not speeding. I'm glad I got that set of keys in there that helps the accident be credible. And then the he's here, as I built this paragraph brick by brick, I had to underdo it, so the third person helps me do that. As a statement, what happened? New paragraph. Carol Ostell's class was sitting on the floor at my feet, following along in their books. Morris had told me, as he passed me, to make the inter- so. A more- Carol Ostell, his a friend of his, obviously, who'd been in college, brought her class. Morris had told me, as he passed me, to make the introduction that he had sold all the books. Bless these school kids, he said. <laughs> I read from the book without comment. The pieces are numbered by the week in which I wrote them. I'd read them all before, of course, but this was the first time there had been anyone else in the room. It was like being burned. I don't know what happened at the end, but there was some applause, and I sat by the counter and signed books for all those kids, and then Carol Ostell came up and hugged me and kissed my cheek. I knew I was going to get her. She's in the room. And I thought it was sort of wonderful that a girl I'd known for ten years had become a teacher, and I felt about her now as if she were my teacher. Then I signed a few more books, and the kids left, and it got quiet in the Phoebe Caulfield bookstore, catching the name again. Summary sentence, I'm glad to find it. The pace, all of a sudden, time speeds up. I was, and it got quiet in the Phoebe Caulfield bookstore, and Morris moved deftly to put the chairs away. The waitress, Abby, came up and shook my hand and showed me her book and said, I'll have you sign it next time you come in. I'm glad I came over. Use that pen. <laughs> I told Morris that I didn't want to get a drink, but I wanted to go home now. It had been plenty. I sort of got him. He's, he's, that's enough attention. In front, in the dark city night, I walked over to my car in the small parking lot. I'd sold the other car at a huge loss just to get rid of it. I forgot about that car until I caught it there. I was glad to. And I liked this little Nissan just fine. There was a woman in front of my car standing looking across the street at the two bars, the line in front of Cabango. Then she turned to me and I saw it was the boy's mother. 
Her name was Mary Patrick, and she was in her late 30s. I had seen her last at the hearing when the judge and the attorneys did all their paperwork. She didn't speak to me then. I just remembered how incredibly tired she looked. I hadn't written about it, of course. The man's book wasn't about the boy or his family. It was about harm and time and the way a person tries to think and the light in a day and the human body and the way a person tries to think and the way a person thinks and it was about the opposite of harm. Okay, now I'm having, okay, I'm going really slowly now. When I've got, I've, I, I can go slowly. To, why, why, uh, again and again, I, so the sentence is, I could not get in my car. Her eyes were shouted from the bright lights on the street, but I could see the small fires there, like some distant encampment. That's the most uh, far out metaphor I'm going to use, and I'm, it's, it's too much for this story, but I'm keeping it. I, you know, it's sometimes every once in a while you just keep something, and it's, it's sort of wrong-headed for this piece. But what was the title of his book of poems? Um, it's called um, "One Flame, Two Nights." So maybe, maybe I'm okay. Uh, hello, I said. Were you in there? I was. She said. I was curious about your writing. The man had nothing to say at that moment. And the man had nothing to do at that moment. He let go of the car and walked up to the sidewalk to stand by the woman. I'm sorry for what happened, I said. I wrote you a letter. I'm sorry for my role in what happened. I know you are, she said. Tom is on his way. He's getting better. No cane. Running's next. Really, he'll be running by summer. I'm glad to hear that. She was wearing a gray cardigan and had folded her arms against the cold. That's the kind of simple sentence that I just love. It's just enough. Is it great? No. Is it good? You can stand on that sentence. She was wearing a gray cardigan and had folded her arms against the cold. We've already had the cold four pages before, and a gray cardigan is enough. I don't want to trick things up. I just want a declarative sentence that I believe. Her black hair was shoulder length, longer than in court, and it shined in the many facets of the light. Why did you come? I wanted to know if you were going to build your celebrity on my son. The man stood still. That isn't my intention. Do you think that's what I'm doing? No, you're doing what I'm doing. You're trying to figure it out. The wind came by and the man quickly pulled off his old... Okay. The wind came by and the man quickly pulled off his old tweed jacket and draped it in a single motion around the woman's shoulders. If it had been a two-part gesture, she would have declined. That's the biggest gambit in the story. I'm just going to say it's my story. I'm sticking to it. There are women who would allow such a thing. I've seen it happen, and there are women who would not allow such a thing. There's no better use for a sport coat than to put it over the shoulders of a woman. Um, thank you, Mary Patrick said. It's cold. So I'm trying to figure her out. There's a page left. This is the left. No, yeah, there's a page. Then the woman held out her hand tentatively, three fingers, and reached over and placed them on the heart of the man and said, Oh, my. Mary Patrick lifted her fingers and showed the blue tips to me, and I looked down and saw the ink stain on the bottom of my shirt pocket, round as a silver dollar. Blue ink in my old Oxford cloth shirt. I pulled my pen from my pocket and saw the nose wasn't retracted. The ink had been wicking into my shirt. It's okay, I said, hating to have ruined it. It's an old shirt. Give it to me, Mary Patrick said. I closed the pen and put it in my pants pocket. I'm sorry? Give me your shirt. I can get it so it's like new. She held her hand out. I'm a sort of redemptive writer. 
I mean, again and again, I've cited for it. But you, you want to earn your ending. Okay, I, nothing worse than the dark, gratuitous ending. Uh, most dark endings, well, the, we're not interested in the gratuitous. I'm interested in earning whichever way, whatever amount of light is going to descend. Give me your shirt. I get it like it's new. She held her hand out. He'd never heard such a thing. You can almost hear the writer. He'd never heard such a thing. Never, what? <laughs> he ruined two shirts a year the same way, and he was weary of throwing out his good old shirts. Here? Just give it. She spoke as if she knew him. Like that. I unbuttoned the shirt and pulled it off, so I was standing bare in the night wind. Mary Patrick was looking at my chest. Now, I'm going to have trouble here, and so what I do, I'm going to put in a half a page little flashback to try to earn the moment. Watch this, then. And it's, it's deft, but in such a short story, this story comes in at probably 2,000 words. I unbuttoned the shirt and pulled it off, so I was standing bare in the night wind. Mary Patrick was looking at my chest, and when I looked, I saw the blue stain over my breastbone. She reached again and touched the place, and of the times I had been naked in the past year, this was the most extreme. Her finger felt like something, and I remembered one fall as a child, Halloween week, getting a haircut one night with my mother and coming out of the shop wild with itching hair, and my mother pulling my shirt up over my head, still buttoned and shaking it in the cold wind, and shaking it in the cold wind, which had a hold of me like a claw, chills bladed across my skinny chest like waves. It was dark, and I was in the front of Preston's Barbers by the barber pole, and the green neon sign for Grove's Drugstore was bright in the next window. There were people walking by, and I had no shirt. I think I was in second grade, maybe third with Mrs. Perkins. My mother brushed my shoulders with my butt shirt, and then shook it harder and helped me struggle back into it, and all of the itchiness was gone, and I was just a boy again. You're blue, the boy's mother said. Careful, don't fold it. She took the shirt from me and held it on a finger in the breeze where it bloomed like a ghost. Now a passing red mini honked and a man called something out. She handed me back my jacket and I put it on with no shirt, something I had never done in my life, and the satin lining felt strange. And there I was, some guy with no shirt in an English sport coat on the street across from Sweet and Wheat. Mary Patrick was grinning privately, turning away. Okay, okay, what? You look ready to go clubbing, Mr. Mills. Your, your hair is all wrong, but you look very with it. This may be the look for you. The man stood in the glowing night watching the woman's hair blow along her chin line. Her eyes were still crinkled. Passing cars slowed, looking to park, faces in the windows. He was naked in his coat, and his blue heart was beating. He put his hands in his trouser pockets and stood up straight. Look at me, the man said. Just look at me now. So ending sort of with a tableau. So that story, written probably in three sittings, um, and I rewrote the ending maybe five times, looking, finally getting the flashback, which allowing, looking away, then comes back, allows for the, maybe the full change. There, this woman's going to wash his shirt. She said, get it good as new, you know, which is what he wants to be. I, I'm not going to interpret the story. You write a story. It's not your job to explain your story. It's your job to be in love with your story. And um, someone else will come along and explain it to you. They do it to me. Um, so again and again, I'm finding my story. And it isn't, like I said, in eight out of the ten stories I'm seeing, there's a mandate from the author, a controlling idea. 
where every element of the story serves the idea. And there's some, and I don't think this comes from the old Edgar Allan Poe, the first essay on the short story, that everything in the story should be part of a vector toward the quote-unquote single effect. Um, I think in the best stories, the stories I love, such as The Swimmer, or any of the stories in the Masterpiece book. My favorite new book is called Portrait of the Artist as a Young Dog. Those stories by Dylan Thomas, which, you know, I bought that book in 1969, and it says so inside the cover. When I had my first teaching job at Salisbury Summer School, and I read two of the stories that year, and I read the other seven last year. And it's the best book of stories I know of. Um, but uh, I'm working from the bottom up in these stories, and... Um, I have my little notebook, which I don't have with me, and this, these cards uh, suffice for... Uh, I write down a moment, the moment, observation, observation, phrase, word. Someone said treasure trove the other day, and I thought, trove? What the heck is that? And um, so it's... Uh, but every once in a while I get a story idea, and um, the last story idea I actually I got is from a film where I saw at the very end of No Country for Old Men when he walks by the swimming pool in that motel and the woman calls out, do you want a beer? And I thought, who is that woman? She, she's harmed. She ends up in trouble. But um, I actually tried to reach her. I wrote to her. I found out her. I know her name as an actress. I looked it up on the, the side and I wrote to her. I wanted to interview her to see how she felt about what direction she'd gotten in that little tiny role. Because that scene is not in the book. Right. In, in a book which is... In a, I don't want to go off on this, but... Um, I do want to say one more thing. In February of 1898, the, uh, that ship blew up in, uh, in Havana Harbor. It was the main, and it became a cause celeb because it was supposed to have been sabotaged. And we used it to start the Spanish-American War in one more reason. But it was not sabotage. It was spontaneous combustion. And you know who wrote the book on it, the definitive book in the 60s, was Admiral Rickover. And he went and did all this research, the famous, most respected admiral in the history of the Navy. And it was this wet munitions drying in the hold of this airless cargo ship, I mean airless uh, destroyer, that blew up the ship and... Um, it was hard for me not to put that in that story last night. I had to let go of all of that, uh, February 15th, 1898. Um, Can I ask a question? Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of done. I just wanted to make those remarks and lay that out. And then this whole, there's one other thing in it is that it's like the story that I'm writing now. It's hard. These, uh, you think, I'll unfold the paper one more time. I'll unfold the paper one more time. I know, and... Um, you have to be tolerant, you have to be generous, you have to be willing to find some things that you didn't uh, understand might be there at the top. Um, I, um, I just finished a novel where I understood the premise too well. It was very hard to put feet under it, very hard to earn it back. I did what I could, I worked on it for a year trying to make that writing where in that novel I had certain sections that were serving other sections. And in, in the best novels, that's not true. In, in The Great Gatsby, any given moment carries. Um, and um, so I worked very, very hard to make the moments carry themselves. 
and not just be in place for um, somebody else. But yeah, let's just talk. Let's. What what questions are there? So my question is this: um, you know, sometimes for for me, if if I if I just try to follow and 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 so then I get to where I feel it's done. Like I I feel like. I don't necessarily understand it, but it's gone this, this, this length and things have happened and I have no idea, you know, where they came from. Well, then what? I mean, so I can come away from that and like a lot of times I'm like singing hymns because the, the feeling of that, it feels right to me. But I don't know what to do next. I mean, I, I, you know, you talk about writing like 40 pages and then cutting it to 20. Mm -hmm. And that process seems very mysterious to me. I mean, I can look at language well, and see what's not working and all that. Yeah, I would say let's write eight stories. Let's write eight stories before um, December first. Say, let's and what you're what you're talking about is the last bit. That is to say, the shape, the strategy, the form of the story. And so we want to start in the middle of these stories. And by the middle, I want to that is to say, I want to have something underway. And then I want to find out to whom it's happening. So and I do an exercise called the um, the pet store. Uh, where two people, you establish that they're going to a pet store, two people opposite sex, any relationship, father, daughter, etc. They're going to the pet store, they're going to get something. The next section is where they've been, where they've been this week and where they've been the last year. And that's a page each. And then arriving at the, at the pet store. So it's the 213. So we would work generally on this two-one-three format. So I get you started, get so that I'm waiting to see the other shoe drop. Then you take me this way. Um, the um, remembering your story about the the woman, and then she has that terrible history with her father. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you have all that in the middle. Then what are you coming back to? So I should have A and B. There should be a sense. Right now they meet in, in her psyche, so what you've written is sort of a portrait of a woman, that how are they related? How are these two sections related? This, um, and then when you arrive at three, let's assume that a guy is um, banging on the door of his house in, outside of Missoula, Montana, at uh, four in the morning. It's just dawn. No, it's seven in the morning. It's dawn. It's winter. Banging, and so you get banging door, page, and then we get what happened last night at the bar with, with Doreen, a couple pages, page on the porch, two pages in the bar, then you come back, is, what's going to happen in the pet store is, what are we going to buy, what's going to happen, is it going to involve someone who's had a heart attack in the fish aisle? Or is it gonna and and is she gonna answer the door? Is it or is it Bert? Bert, what are you doing in my house, Bert? I gotta write this down. And uh, so that's that's what we're talking. But my answer to you is, and your question is is a good one. The um, I want to exercise. I want to do eight stories by December first, and then we'll the next question will be the question. And it's going to be like that. It's going to be practice for form. I can I can describe that story that you've written now as as a portrait of a woman in trouble, and it has uh, a certain energy, the sensuous problem of the, you know I don't want to talk about it, but fleas, the fleas, you know, fleas. and then um, the veiled innuendo about her father that you, you know you've been a little coy with. Um, 
not to talk about this too long, but but um, I, I'm not interested in a story having too much form. It doesn't need to go bing, bang, boom. But I'm also not interested in the linear story, which is just a plateau and seems to wander and go along without any accretion, without anything gathering. So um, I don't know how many stories you've written or where you are, but I, we need to press on. It would be so nice if we came out of the shoots and just wrote one silver story in a golden moment in a perfect room, and we all carried you around the campus here. And uh, But it's not going to happen. Uh, we keep making mistakes, and there's always, in my work, in my early work, there's a word I'd like to change in the governor's ball. But, um, and um, so when we put it, anyway, that's, that's enough of it. What else is there? Go ahead. Um, I was wondering with your, um, with Lanny, did you know when you started the story that he'd hit a kid? And a no, I didn't. So when did you find that out and how did that impact You know, I wish, I wish I could tell you that without, I mean, it sounds like, oh, Carlson's hiding his cards, but I'm not. I'm saying we started, and I knew, I had this, this form, this woman said, give me your shirt. And so then I had to decide which woman. I wrote an exercise for my class called Girl in a Car. I'm going to put a boy in a car with a girl in the car. So how many variations on that theme are there? And I'm trying to get them to see that it's, there's an infinite number of variations, uh, depending on how much authority you give these people. And so, um, no, I just began to think about who would it be. And if you think about it, when I took the generic waitress and then tipped her to Abby, that's the same kind of thing I'm doing with this. It's pretty extreme. The mother of the boy you've harmed. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a premise stealer. It wants to take all the air out of the story. Uh, unless I can hold it until the last page and then have her there for a reason. And then she's also diffident. She says, I'm trying to make sense out of this too, which is right. She isn't there to, to recriminate. And, and uh, so I'll, go, I'll stay with it. I'll go with it. It's interesting about my table store because as they were working the table up the street, I kept thinking, who's this guy? Where does he live? Who's this guy? Where does he live? And so my guy is a screenwriter who's come out to have lunch with his friend. She's got some news for him. She actually tells him at the store that she's pregnant. And um, they're, trying to, they're talking about this father and uh, because he's going to have to help in, in the absence of a default. But... So I've got that. I've got a screenwriter out looking to buy shirts, sick of the screenplay he's working on. And then I've got this wonderful, whose table is this? This guy. And I gave him a pair of uh, pants that he belts a little too high and show too much ankle, sort of square, almost like a pocket protector. I'm doing a little bit of a nerd. Not much. Very quiet. And they get to a, t a block of apartments. They even describe the apartments. This heavy table, up, up, up. There's a sentence that I wrote, if you'd have told me a, a minute before we entered the apartment that there was a beautiful woman inside, I'd have lost that bet. So there's a woman inside, and then the inventory is, he sees a stack of screenplays on the floor with the brads through them. And he actually knows this screenwriter. It's a screenwriter. And he knows this guy. So... You can. That's Carlson kind of closing his circle. The guy doesn't know him, um, but um, 
and he knows the woman. She was in. She played. <laughs> I said she played. She played Eva in uh, a movie about Hitler, and uh, <laughs> so that was a surprise to me. But I wanted to come up close and get. I want to create coherence without being too. When I wrote the story Blazo about going to Alaska, I met someone in the in the, one of the teachers at Johnson State College had just read it with her class and. It's my favorite story in that book, The Kind of Flying. It's a very serious story about a guy who goes to Alaska to see the place where his son perished. And um, so I made Thomas Burns, the attorney from New Haven, an alcoholic. He's a recovering alcoholic. And he goes to Alaska, and it's very sorely tempted. I mean, it's, it's a country that just makes him want to have a drink. And he becomes allies with a guy named Blazo, who drinks heating fuel, who's an Inuit. And um, I met a guy named Blazo when I was in the Arctic Circle once. And um, so they become this, you know, Blazo's his one chance of getting to this remote village where his son has perished. And so anyway, story, story, stories. But when the New Yorker wrote me back on that story, they said, it's a little literary to have them both alcoholics. <laughs> and uh, so my note on the, oh, the table store story, whenever I saw that coming, I want it. It's a little, quote-unquote, literary. It rings. I want the bell to have both sides. And it's just the way I work. And it's, again, I'm, you're getting my POV this morning. Um, I want a story to have form. I like a story to have memory. I like surprises. I like to catch everything. I caught on the third to last page, Kabanga, on the second to last page, Sweet Nuit. And that was, it just happens. I mean, as you get juggling all the inventory, the, the ticket is to create inventory willingly on the first four or five pages as much as possible. You're a little impoverished in that story because you, you got on that idea and then that poor cat and all of her denizens. Um, and so I wouldn't mind knowing more about those people. Okay. Even his job, which you give me a little bit on. Mm -hmm. So this serves as our conference. I won't need to talk to you later. Um, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, of course. Tell me, um, okay, well, are there anything else? Well, I'd like to ask. Go ahead. Of, um, you know, I, I mostly have, I've worked mostly as a poet. And for the last two years, I'm working on my first um, one-person show, so nice. dealing with a longer uh, form. And <clears throat> part of my issue may be something that you won't be able to help me with because it's about working with Braille, and I know if people use cards and put them on boards and stuff like uh -huh. that to figure out stuff. So. But I'm just trying to get myself more to a place where I'm willing to go from messy to tidy and back to messy. Um, and so this has been helpful, but I'm, I'm just wondering... When you do that, when you think you have, maybe your first, you said often you write in three sittings. If you've done your first two sittings and you realize, I really need to do something with this, do you start over? Do you cut and mm -hmm. paste? Or how, how do you work and how do you give yourself that freedom to really break it wide open again? That's a, a great question. I work in a lot of ways. I, I blunder forward. I don't go back. I want to... Even if, I've, in my drafts, I'll have a 17-page single-space draft that's going to end up being 9 or 10 pages. Mm -hmm. And what happens is, uh, sometimes names change. I can't remember if the newspaper reporter 
was named this or that. That's part of the reason for this, that cue that you caught in this. Great. And then, um, and sometimes two people will become one. I'll forget the city, and because I know I can fix those things later. Right. So I'm extremely forgiving, and my day writing is uh, I'm an unt I'm not tutored. I don't I do not want the teacher or the editor in the room with me. I want to just go ahead, and when I'm really writing well, I can't spell. I mean, my spe and I'm an excellent speller. I'm one of the great spellers of all time. But uh, it goes away for me. I, you know, I spell hide, H-Y-D-E. I did it the other day. And um, I still can't spell embarrassed, but that's, that's an old problem. The um, issue is that I just spill, spill, spill. Yeah. And then what I do is uh, I print all my stories. I use hard copy all the time. Mm -hmm. And I'm having a problem. I thought I'd be able to use my computer this week, and I'm trying to use it, but I realize now and I've negotiated out to get some hard copy made. Oh, that's interesting. And so then the I have to have hard copy, and I print on colored paper, which isn't going to help you. Right, but this and, is, I'll, I'll make some improvisations. Yeah, I print on green. I always have different papers, and it goes through seasons, and it's interesting because yellow, blue, brown, green, pink, and I can tell when I go to a folder that, that which draft, where I am with right. the story just by memory, visual memory, and yeah. then I pencil pencil edit, and the last thing I'll do sometimes I'll take the story with me on a trip, read it on the plane with a pencil. I love to pencil edit and then enter those changes later. So you you basically pencil in the margins or yes. Yeah. I, I, what usually the most common uh, thing that I do is uh, I put circles in the margins, three sizes. One circle the size of the end of my finger, one the size of a quarter, and one bigger that goes into the text maybe three inches, and that means you need to open this up here. In my draft on Blue Heart, when I wrote that flashback that takes half a page about him getting the haircut with his mother, that was a circle about the size of a dollar in the margin there. Open this up, go in, open it, and um, then um, I try not, then it's hard because I try to only keep one copy of the story on my computer. I don't want multiple copies. That's these computers and the flash drives have been, you know, it's miserable. I, I prefer hard copy, and I'll be glad when we get over this internet and it passes away. And just, you know, that's why I'm glad it's the cloud, because that, you know, how long could that last? Um, but uh, I'm a very physical writer. I, I wrote all my books on typewriters, and and I've been working on a computer like everybody else for 20 years now. Yeah. So when you open up, uh, uh, do you take a separate piece of paper and just... Uh, start writing, or do you actually? Because I'm assuming if you're writing uh, handwriting, you can't literally make space on that page to open it up yeah. there. I do both. I've I've written in hand in my in my notebook, and then I insert it in the computer. And sometimes I'll go and I'll take those two pages, I'll copy them to another document, and I'll say, you know, coffee shop uh, open, gotcha. and I'll date it, and then okay. and I'll just spill. I need to, I need to feel. Yes. You know, this whole question that comes up all the time between writing and rewriting, and why is rewriting so daunting? Because we feel, we feel enclosed. It's a little bit like being in the middle seat of an airplane mm -hmm. and trying to drink mm -hmm. your coffee. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> so I don't want that feeling. I want to yeah. I, I go in and maybe I'll make, make, make a thing that's a paragraph into two pages. Yeah. Well, this is helpful. I'll just say, uh, uh, you know, I can't take a Braille writer around with me and do hard copy. But So the way I've been trying to trick myself is, 
since I'm pretty much confined to the computer, I've actually created a folder called Messy Scenes. Nice. And then I actually have a file in there called As Messy as Scrap Paper. And at the top, I wrote a reminder to myself, you know, basically, this is what you would write if you could do scrap paper. Mm -hmm. Nice. That's helping a bit. Well, it, if we try to write up to uh, elevation, if we try to write it right, you're asking, you're asking to, I mean, I'm very interested in high jumping with no bar. I like the idea of making it possible to write. And I've had students who were choking on stricture or sometimes dogma or sometimes expectation, and I've tricked them with exercises and writing badly. Yeah. And uh, I had one guy who said, you know, I said, we're going to meet, we're all going to write bad ghost stories. And the story he wrote was the best thing he'd written in two years of graduate school. And he knows it, and he, he also, he let go of the knowing. Um, 